right, so as the, the title states, it, we're going to be talking about doctrine and deeds. Right? Doctrine and deeds are very much intertwined together. What you believe in your head should come out through your hands. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. All right? <clears throat> what we believe in our minds should come out in our actions, and we're going to see that with regards to this letter. So just a real quick overview. This letter encourages and gives instructions to Titus in his leadership role on the island of Crete. In many, it shares many characteristics with 1st and 2nd Timothy, and I'm going to show a slide later to show you the parallels between them, since both relate to combining, combating heresy, teaching sound doctrine, appointing leaders, and relationships within the church. That's just a real quick synopsis. What it contains, it contains instructions to, to Titus for setting in order the churches on Crete, including the appointment of qualified elders and the instruction of various social groups, families, men, women, set against the backdrop of some false teachers and cultural issues. He addresses both the leaders and the legalists. Okay, So this is Paul setting up the churches in Crete. He's also setting them up in Ephesus uh, and Greece, and we're gonna, I'm going to show you a little map in a minute or two to go through that. Okay, So who's the author? The author is the Apostle Paul, although it's actually doubted by some people because the letters uh, to, from t to Titus and 1st and 2nd Timothy are so similar, they think that maybe it was done by uh, the person who takes dictation, something along those lines. So, but for the most part, most scholars are, are in agreement that it is the Apostle Paul. It's dated around 62-63 AD, apparently from Macedonia at about the same time as 1st Timothy. Um, the recipient is Titus, who is a Gentile and sometime traveling companion of Paul, and we can see that in the book of Galatians, uh, 2 Corinthians, also in the book of Acts, and the churches written to the churches in Crete. Paul wrote this uh, when he left Titus, uh, when he left Titus on Crete to finish setting, setting the churches in order, while he and Timothy apparently went to Ephesus where they met a very distressing situation, see 1 Timothy. But Paul had to go on to Macedonia, uh, that's in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Philippians 2, so he addressed the church churches through a letter to Titus. So let me make this a little bit easier for us to understand. Okay, so <clears throat> this is Ephesus. You know the Philippians, that's Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, that's where the Bereans are, that's Corinth. This over here is Crete. Now, Paul was in Italy when he, uh, when he sailed. He was on his way to Ephesus, and then he stopped at Crete. Crete was inhabited by Jews who went to Jerusalem, which is down here. They went to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts, and then they would, they would sail back to Crete. So there were some Christians on the island already. Paul drops Titus off there, leaves him there, and then he goes to Ephesus little bit closer up for you. So that's Crete. That's the little island of Crete. That bracketed area, I did the best I could with the, the shape, that's modern-day Greece. Okay? So you see Corinth is over there. Ephesus and, and Greece are, are parallel to one another. So these, these were all on Paul's missionary journeys. So the island of Crete is where Paul left Titus. And when we go into the background of the island of Crete, you'll understand a lot more of what the epistle is actually addressing. Now, to get us uh, um, an idea of the size of Crete, 
Long Island is 100 and, approximately 118 miles long. Crete is about 160 miles. So it's not to scale, but it's about, Long Island is about three quarters the size of Crete. So Crete's of good size. It's not, it's not a tiny island. It's a decent sized island. So let's talk about Titus and who he is. Titus was one of Paul's early converts, and Paul would end up later calling him my true child in the common faith. Now remember, Paul wasn't married. He didn't have children. So he became very close with Titus as he took him on his missionary journeys, so much so that he calls him my one true child in the common faith. So there was a definite bond between him and Paul and Titus. Titus was a Greek Gentile, and he was uncircumcised, and that's going to come into play in a, in a minute, possibly from Antioch of Syria. And Antioch of Syria was on, on this side in the north. He was taken by Paul to Jerusalem to discuss the nature of the gospel in Galatians 2. Remember, do anybody want to remember what he was talking about with regards to Galatians 2 when he brought him to Jerusalem? No? Circumcision, right, right. That's why I made a point of saying he was uncircumcised. He was so vibrant a disciple that the Jerusalem leaders were persuaded that Paul's grace-based gospel was acceptable. Now remember, the Jews would say, in order to be a Christian, you have to become a Jew first, which means you need to be circumcised. You need to do all the things we do as Jews. Then you can become a Christian. Right? And Paul is saying, no, no, you, you are a Christian by grace through faith. Right? <clears throat> the gospel is from people of every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, not just the Jews. You don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. That's what the Judaizers were trying to do, trying to get uh, Gentiles to keep the Mosaic law and trust in Jesus, which is addressed in the book of Hebrews, right? So he was with Paul in Ephesus on his third missionary journey and was Paul's ambassador to the troubled church in Corinth. Titus ends up being like the fixer guy. Paul leaves him in places and tells him, look, set this thing in order. After Paul was released from his Roman imprisonment, he assigned Titus the responsibility of helping the churches on the island of Crete put sound leadership in place. After this letter was written, Paul sent him to Dalmatia, 2 Timothy 4.10. Titus proved to be a courageous and strong leader. He was the fixer. So Paul trusted him enough to leave him on the island, says, look, set up elders, set up deacons. This is how you do it. These are the requirements for elders and deacons, and we've gone through that a bunch of times here. So he, the, the church at Crete wasn't organized at that point in time. So this is the first organization that they're getting from the apostle to Titus and, and now to the, to the rest of the inhabitants. So the overview of Crete, this is, this is really important. When you're reading through the letter, you start seeing certain things that I never saw before because I didn't know the, the context of Crete. Does anybody know what Crete was for? What God came from Crete? It was known as the birthplace of Zeus. And he was a God who deceived the people on the island. Right? <clears throat> he would say one thing and do another. So here you got, you know, they're, they're all following this, this God, Zeus. And, God, and this God, Zeus, was a liar. In fact, the residents came to be known as liars. The, the word kritizo, 
meant to be a Cretan, and to be a Cretan was to be a liar. Their, their top poet, Epimenides, he, write, he writes himself, Cretans are always liars, vicious beasts, and lazy gluttons. So that's a guy from Greece talking about the Cretans came up with a name for them, right? <laughs> Cretizo. So why do you think um, Zeus being a god who lies plays into what Paul is going to write to Titus? You can talk now. Now would be a good time. No. No, no, the Jews were trying to be truthful anyway. All right, because Paul writes in verse 2 to the God who never lies. He offers them the God of the scriptures, the one true God, Yahweh, a God who doesn't lie. This is the exact opposite of Zeus and the exact opposite of the Cretans who were on the island. They were known for lying. They were brutes. They were very rough and tumble people. They were, the, the island itself was known as a treacherous and greedy place. They were brute, rough and tumble men. Most of the men on the island were actually mercenary soldiers, which are soldiers who are hired out to fight someone else's battle. So Crete was inhabited by soldiers who lied, who were in their flesh, who were doing all the things that soldiers do when soldiers want to do them. Right? And that's, that's very important because, again, this is, a, this is a, an epistle about doctrine and deeds. Right? The deeds of the Christians on that island were going to be vastly different than the deeds of the mercenary soldiers and the Cretans that lived there. It was a place of violent, violence, crime, sexual corruption, and it had many good harbors. So this was a, a, a place of trade. There was always new sailors coming in. You know, staying for a couple of days, leaving, it, it, was a, it was a lot of transient people coming to the island, which lends to a criminal element, okay, on top of the fact that the Cretans were like that to begin with. So this was not a real easy place to live. This was a rough and tumble place. The culture of Crete, I'm trying to think of, of, a, of a town that it would be like, it would be just a very rough town, right, with, with mercenary soldiers and sailors all over the place. Again, the Jews migrated there and would sail back to Jerusalem for the feast days. So there would be Jews living on Pentecost, uh, living, <laughs> living on Crete, going back to Jerusalem okay, for, for the temple sacrifice. Some of them went, and they obviously they were there during Pentecost. Some of them became Christians, and they sailed back to Crete. Titus was left in Crete to appoint elders and order and organize the church. Now, who knows the uh, requirements for an elder? Anyone? What? His wife isn't supposed to drink, not him. <laughs> He's allowed to drink, not the wife. Elder is to be above reproach. Is that like the Cretans? No. The husband of one wife. Is that like the Cretans? No. Not pugnacious, not given to fighting. Is that like the Cretans? No. Um, who's a good steward of his money? Is that like the Cretans? No. One who handles his family well? Is that like the Cretans? No. All the requirements of an elder, okay, are the exact opposite of what the Cretans were. 
So this is drawing a clear dichotomy between the people of God and the people who live on Crete. And it's going to be a tough go, right? I mean, look at, look at where we live. I mean, we, we try to live upright lives, um, and the culture just doesn't like it. The culture rails against us. How much more so in the area of Crete at that time? So there was an emphasis to the Christians on that island for good works, integrity, generosity, because the inhabitants of the island were liars and brutes to begin with. They were a rough and tumble crowd. So their witness to them would make a big difference if your behavior followed what you believe, right? So what comes in here has to come out here. That's going to be very important in a little bit. What we believe translates to how we act. Doctrine, your doctrine and your deeds must line up. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, how you practice what you believe. So this is going to be a witness to the, to the inhabitants of Crete that these people are willing to love me, to sacrifice for, for us, to do these things for us when we're acting like animals. Tell me, what God is it that you serve? We serve God, Zeus, right? That's a God of lies. And the Christian is able to witness him. No, we serve a God who doesn't lie. The gospel should reflect a transformed life. It should display purity, goodness, love, and grace. So as he's telling Titus to set up uh, elders, okay, men who, are, who have a known reputation, men who, who, who can teach and preach the word of God, who have bona fide professions of faith, this is going to be the way that they reach the community through love and grace, which is what the gospel is, right? You're a sinner. You're worthy of, of judgment, but we have a God who's willing to send his son down into the earth to take your place and take your punishment. Repent, change the way you think about your sin, and begin to trust in the God who loves you enough to, to send his son into the world for you. There was also a Gnostic movement down there. Now, <clears throat> Gnosticism is actually still sometimes prevalent up here. So what, what a, a Gnostic would believe is that everything in the flesh is bad and everything in the spirit is good, right? <clears throat> so they, they frowned on the things of the flesh. They tried to, to beat their bodies and uh, do, do spiritual things. In fact, they didn't believe that Jesus came in the flesh because the flesh was bad, right? I think they were called docetists, am I right? I think they were called docetists because they don't believe Jesus had a fleshly body. And Gnosticism is also based on this special knowledge based on whatever emanation you attain to, you would have this special knowledge that other people didn't have. And that's not true, obviously. All right. The last three letters of Paul were 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Okay? So Titus ends up being one of the last three letters that Paul writes. So when you see that little island of Crete and Ephesus, okay, those were the last places that Paul went to to establish churches. So this is kind of like his, his, his parting words to, to his, 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 his son, Titus, son in the faith, and Timothy. And those letters are endearing. You could tell through, through the way he writes how he's, he's intimately tied to both of them. Okay, so here's the common themes in First and Second Timothy. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. I just wanted to point it out to you. 
Titus, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are very similar. They both start off with a knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. Again, what you believe should translate into actions, right? A leader's example is vital. That's why we need to set up elders, men who are above reproach, okay, who are able to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. So you need men who, who lead and give an example to the, to the remaining people in the church. What the, the leaders of the, what the duties of the leaders are. And these, this is in each of these epistles. In fact, one commentator said that he, he believed that Titus and 1 Timothy were written on the same day. Now, I don't know how he would know that, but they're so similar that you can see how it basically seemed like it was the same letter. Again, godly life and doctrine are to be applied. It's not something that's theoretical. Oh, this is how we should act. It's like, no, faith without works is dead. You need to put into practice the things that you've been taught uh, and practical results of our common salvation, how that's going to affect the people around us. Okay, so two of the themes. One is sound doctrine. Again, Paul stresses the teaching of sound doctrine and warns against those who would distort the truth. There's always, always uh, a desire for the enemy to distort the truth. They're always seeking ways to distort the truth of Christianity. He tells Titus, he, the elder, must be able to teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So an elder needs to know what sound doctrine is, and he needs to know how to contradict, uh, uh, how to refute those who contradict it. Right now I'm dealing with a guy who's holding to universalism. That means everybody gets to heaven. No, <laughs> no, that's not what the scripture teaches. In fact, that's dangerous. If you start telling everybody that Jesus died for all your sins, so everybody's going to get to heaven. Could you imagine somebody who actually believes you, takes you up on that? They still try to live a good life, but they, they end up not repenting and trusting in Christ. Right? <clears throat> so the elder, and, and even just us as Christians, we need to be aware of the lies and the things that people are are trying to teach us. Like Pastor Chris says every week, we are being uh, evangelized from the world. They are trying to teach us something and tell us something. And I want to tell you that your life is a commercial for your worldview. People are watching you, especially when you say you're a Christian. All eyes are on you. How you comport yourself in the world is a commercial for how you're, what you believe. So make sure that what comes out of your mouth also comes out in the actions that you perform. Good deeds. This letter puts a major emphasis on good deeds and the conduct of various groups within the church. Again, the good deeds that the church would do are going to be a tremendous witness to the people on that island who just learned to live in a corrupt way. Similar to Cuba, right? Every single one of them has to sell something on the black market in order to survive. So <clears throat> criminality is routine there. You can't survive without doing something that's against the law, all right? But it was even worse on Crete because they were doing worse things than just selling things on the black market. The people in Cuba are doing that to survive. These people were doing that because they wanted to. All right, Titus 2.7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity, right? So again, we want to model our good works for our, our brothers around us. 
Key passage, I love this passage, Titus 2, 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for, the, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So in this short little passage, we see that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Why would that be so important on the island of Crete? It's your time to talk. Feel free to shout it out. You don't even need to raise your hand at this point. Yes? Well, not all the people were Jewish, right? So no. none of them were Gentiles, so there's salvation for both the Jews and Gentiles. Certainly. And when... I'm sorry? <laughs> right? <laughs> when you're living on an island that is inhabited by fishermen and soldiers who are drinking and, you know, feeding their flesh, you're going to say to yourself, God can't save people like that. Gosh, how could God save a guy like that? And what Paul is telling Titus and what Titus is going to teach the church is that God brings salvation for all kinds of people. No matter how bad you think you are, you are not beyond the arm of God. God can save anyone he likes. No matter how bad you think they are or how much you think that they disqualified themselves from knowing Jesus. That's something that we got to have to get into our heads and make sure that we're not unintentionally saying, oh, that guy, I'm not witnessing to him. How could he possibly get into heaven? I wouldn't want to be in heaven if he was there. God forbid you say something like that, right? All right, so this word training, this is originally used the way a family would bring up and educate a child. It was used of activity directed toward the moral and spiritual nurturing of a child um, to instruct, particularly with a child or youth. So this is to train young Christians how to walk in the ways of God, to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and what? Live self-controlled lives. What's the last fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. I think they put it last for a reason, right? Because that's like the one we, it's the hardest to get to. right? It's another thing that this uh, passage teaches. It talks about the, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why is that important? He just called Jesus God. Right? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're witnessing to a Jehovah's Witness? Go here. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ask him, how many saviors do you believe in? One. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 46, I think it says, besides me, there is no Savior. That's Jehovah God. Besides me, there is no Savior. Well, if Jesus is the Savior, and you think Jehovah is a different Savior, you believe in two Saviors. Again, I always tell him, I said, listen, we don't have a theological problem. We have a mathematical problem. You can't add, right? <laughs> you, you keep saying, you know, Jehovah's God and Jesus is, is, is little God or Jehovah's sa uh, Jehovah is Savior and Jesus is Savior. That's two Saviors. There's only one, right? So this is important. He's telling Titus and the rest of the church that Jesus is our God and our Savior. 
And he came to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession. Like I talked about um, on Sunday, Jesus' death on the cross purifies those whom he intended to save. There's no such thing as purgatory. There's no such thing as when you die, now God's going to purge the rest of the sins that you have left on your record, and it's going to take time in order to do that. Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to purify you without purgatory. And finally, he says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Again, he's on an island with a lot of soldiers. Okay, If, if Titus doesn't stand up for himself and rebuke the soldiers and he starts falling prey to their authority, not going to be good. So Paul's telling them, stand up for yourself. You, got, you have the authority, that, the authority that I as an apostle give to you and the calling that God has upon you. Use that authority. Rebuke others when it comes to the things of God. Okay, so there was something that I, I've been thinking about for a long time with regards to good works. Right, and we're going to go through four verses within Titus with regards to good works. Because we always have people that, that say, you need good works to go to heaven. You can't just go to heaven by faith alone. Right? The Roman Catholics will look at us and say, well, you believe that we're saved by faith alone. But James says, you know, we're not saved by faith alone. Right? So how do, you, how do you reconcile this? I think when we go through these four verses in Titus, we're going to be able to do that. So the first verse, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So when it says He saved us, what, what word would we use to describe saved? Salvation, right? This is talking about salvation. He saved us. This is salvation. Why? It's not because of works done by us. It wasn't anything that we did that was good that God said, I'm going to reward that with eternal life. That's no. Again, all of our good works are filthy rags before God. Right? Verse 7. So that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What does that word justified mean? Right, that, that's, that's a pastorism, yes. Right? What, yes. Declared righteous. Declared right in God's sight. Again, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. So Jesus' righteousness gets, gets imputed or applied to our account so that when we stand before God, we stand on Jesus' account. So that when God looks at us, it's like he's looking at the record of Jesus. Right? And that's by grace. What is grace? Getting what you don't deserve. So that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So now, being justified by grace. Now I get to use my, soft, my Bible software program, right? <clears throat> And Pastor Chris will be able to help, help us out. Being justified, that's a verb in the aorist passive tense. Now, aorist passive means that it's a perfect action completed in the past, and the recipient is passive. You're not 
active in doing it. You're receiving something from someone else. Am I right? Okay. Say again? That's passive, right? But the heiress part is it's a completed action in the past. So justification was completed by Jesus in the past, and we receive it passively. It's not something that we work for. Guess what? That's also true of that verb, he saved us. That's a verb, aorist, passive. Again, it's something done in the past, completed action, that we receive passively. It's not something that we do. Okay? So uh, I'm just trying to think of an example of you receiving something that you didn't have to do anything for. Like somebody deposits, somebody pays off your mortgage, praise God, right? Did you do anything to get that? No, but it's there, it's done, you received it, right? You don't have to pay your mortgage anymore because someone paid it off, thank goodness. Someone's going to say, yeah, but that's so that we might become heirs. You might become heirs. Anybody want to tell me what fallacy he's somebody would be committing if they, if they used, he might become heirs? Yes. Yes. Who said that? Thank you. Equivocation. That's like when somebody says you, you're taking a, a plane to Ohio. You get on a plane, you might get to Ohio. It's like, well, you're going to Ohio. You know, that's, that's what the word means. But guess what? Might become is a verb in the aorist passive tense. So again, this is a completed action, okay, that you receive passively. It's not something that you're doing. It's very important that we understand this. Because if we take someone who's holding to the fact that you need works to get to heaven, right, you're earning something, we can show them this verse, Titus 3, 4, and 5. Okay, we're going to go through a couple more. Second verse, Titus 3, 8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on, these, insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to do good works. These, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Okay, so now once your life has been transformed, you're going to have a desire to do good things because of what God has done for you. Right? He's transformed your mind. You recognize that my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. My Savior sacrificed himself for me and calls me to die to myself and serve others. So the Holy Spirit inside of you is going to bring about this desire to do good works. Notice, it doesn't say that those good works save you. They're the result of what the Spirit has done. Titus 3.14 and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Right? So good works are the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. How are you going to be known? By your fruit, right? So when God, the Holy, when God changes you and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, people should see a difference between the way you used to live in the way you live now. Again, that makes a big, big difference for the people on Crete, right? If, a, if one of the Cretans gets converted, this guy, let's say, was a, was a womanizer, drinking, just doing whatever he was, he was a liar, and now all of a sudden this guy's life gets transformed because God the Holy Spirit changed his heart, 
that's going to speak volumes to the people around him. Right? So good works are very, very important. You just don't depend on them for your salvation. Right? So we want to depend on the, the works of Christ on our behalf to save us, and then we want to reflect what God has done for us to the people around us. Again, fulfilling the commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yes? All right. uh, this Sunday at Out of Port Jeff, we had a, a Greek Orthodox guy talking, Chris and I, and he went to Matthew 25 where he talks about the righteous going into eternal life. When did I see you hungry? When did I see you? And, you know, ultimately at the end, um, in verse 46, when the Lord says, but the righteous into eternal life, what does it mean to be righteous? It means to be justified. Yes. By grace through faith yes. in Christ alone. And proof that you've done that is that you do what the Lord says as described in Matthew chapter 25. Yeah, I, I would have told him, listen, your righteousness, righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees, right? Okay, who were righteous according to, you know, the law, right? So what kind of righteousness do you need when you stand before God? Perfect righteousness. There's only one who came to give us perfect righteousness. That was Christ. That's why we, we place our faith and trust in him. Placing your faith and trust in you or anyone else who doesn't have perfect righteousness, you're not going to get perfect salvation. <laughs> right? Okay. One more verse. And we went through this already, right? <clears throat> we started the, the first part of the verse. I love this. This is the, the key verse of the whole uh, epistle as far as I'm concerned. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Right? This is what we want to do. Right? I think it's, it's, it's in Matthew. He says, let your good works be seen by everyone and glorify your Father in heaven. Right? So the, the good works I do are not something that I would have. Maybe you would have done these things, but more than likely not. But you're doing them for the glory of God, not for, for self-gain, not for selfish reasons. We're doing them because it pleases our God and Savior, and he's called us to do these things. And in doing these things, we fulfill the commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. When did I see you hungry? When did I see you thirsty, right? When did I see you naked? I clothed you, I fed you. You know, these are things that we do. Sometimes we give money to missionaries, right? And we don't know what happens with the money. Well, thankfully we have guys like Hot Neil um, and the Jabellos who come here and tell us what that money goes towards. Now, I talked about, you know, Sunday about works. You know, how, how do you lay up for yourself treasure in heaven? Now, I don't mean that you can cut a check and send it to heaven, right? But what that money does in, in helping missionaries minister to the people they go to, we, we share in that. This, this is a part of what we give goes to that. And we see the gospel furthered because of that. So if God's blessed you and you're able to get, give, why? Because that's going to help further the gospel. And you've got to be careful about who, do you, who you give to. You gotta make sure that they're bona fide and they're do, doing you know, the real work of sharing the gospel. But guess what? That's how the gospel is spread. You know, I always heard that there's goers and senders, right? So if you wanna go, go. But if you're not gonna go, <laughs> send. <laughs> and that means you gotta support them monetarily. Okay. Any questions with, with regards to the, to the good works part?
All right, so Titus 2.5, we're not saved because of good works. 3.8, we're devoted to doing good works. They're profitable. 3.14, they're fruitful. You'll be known by your fruit. 2.14, we're purified to be zealous, desirous for good works. So I think if you brought somebody to the book of Titus and showed them that we are not saved because of our righteous deeds, right, Titus 2.5, but we liked doing good works because they're profitable, they bear fruit, and it's the desire of my heart now. So works come after salvation, not for it. Now, R.C. Sproul did this one time. He says, most people think that it's faith plus works equals salvation. That's the equation. And he's like, quick to say, nope, <laughs> that's not what it is. What he says is faith equals salvation plus works. Once you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, and you're resting on him and him alone, you are saved by grace through faith. Now you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You don't do those good things in order to get into heaven or to receive a in order to receive heaven as your reward. You have Christ. He is your reward. I'm doing these good things because my heart's been changed and I now love the way he loves and I hate the things he hates. I turn from sin because I hate it now. I hate what God hates and now I love what God loves. I love people. Okay? Questions? Does that make sense now that you, you kind of understand the background of Crete and what it was all about, how it was a really slimy place where, you know, you had these soldiers and, and seamen and all kinds of liars, brutes. It was a treacherous, crime-ridden place. And he leaves Titus there, <laughs> right here. I'm going, I'm going to Ephesus. You hang out here. Oof. I feel much better living on Long Island now. I mean, it's not Crete, right? At least it's not Crete. So we have hope. We have hope. Long Island is Christ's island, right? And, and with, with a little bit of faith and, and, and a little oomph behind it, oomph by, by the Holy Spirit, we can change things. So be of good cheer. Long Island is Christ's island. Does the good works and faith thing make sense to you, right? That, that makes sense? Yes. Could you actually just go back to the previous okay. slide moment? Um, this one? Yes. Yes. Could you just explain the second example a little bit more because... I guess for some reason my brain like thinks of it as faith and salvation is what equals works. Um, so could you just explain this one? Sure. Faith without works is dead, right? So once, once you place faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you, now you're saved by grace. Thief on the cross. Now every time I bring that up, somebody says, oh, you're going to point to the exception. I don't think that's the exception. I think that's the rule. Why would, at the most crucial point, the pinnacle of, of Jesus' ministry, at the cross, we have two thieves, one who's unrepentant and one who, who's, who's repentant. He was unrepentant at first, cursing God, right? He has both of his hands nailed to a cross or tied to a cross, both of his legs tied to a cross. What can he do? Nothing. Nothing. He can profess faith. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right? What did he acknowledge just in that one little statement? Jesus is king. And it's up to God, Jesus, 
that I go into your kingdom. Remember me. Right? <clears throat> so he recognized who Jesus was. He's the, this is the king. This is the Lord. Right? Now, thief on the cross is an example of being saved by faith alone. For us who are saved by faith and who get to live another day, what an act of mercy and grace that is. We're sinners, but yet we continue to live. So as we continue to live, good works should flow from our hearts. What comes in here should come out here. So faith equals salvation. You're trusting in Jesus and the good works flow from that. Right. Philippians chapter two, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is a holy God to work, who works in and through you according to his good purpose. So we work out what God worked in. He changed our hearts. Our hearts have new desires. And as long as we're alive, we should seek to please God by doing these things. Again, not relying on our works as a means by which, oh, God, God will accept me now. Look what I did. God looks at Jesus and says, look what he did. That's the basis for you getting into heaven. Does that clear it up? Okay. All right. I, I just want to make sure. I don't want anybody to think that works are something that you rely on or are necessary to pay the price for your sin. Your sin was paid for at the cross by Jesus Christ. You can't add to that. Okay? Put it this way. If somebody paid your mortgage off, and you continued to pay the mortgage company, and they accepted that money, that would be illegal. They'd be stealing, they'd be taking money, okay, that didn't belong to them because the mortgage was paid. Again, this ties into universalism. Universalist is going to say, well, Jesus' death on the cross pays for everybody's sins, but people still go to hell because they sin. Now, the question is, how can somebody go to hell where they're going to now pay for their sins and Jesus pay for them at the same time? Well, hell is, uh, I, I screw this word up, retributive, right? It's, 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 it's rehabilitating them until the payment for their, um, until they are, are uh, the stain of sin is removed from them and then they're going to come back to God. But why would anybody go to hell if all of their sins were paid for. That's double jeopardy. So when, when God pours his wrath out on Jesus for, for the, their sins, he cannot pour his wrath out a second time on them. That's double jeopardy. That would be like the mortgage company continuing to collect the money and not saying anything. That's unjust. God is not unjust. So there's only two scenarios when you die. Either Jesus pays for your sins or you pay for your own sins. All right? And it's serious. This is not something to joke about. You know, we will stand before God and give an account for what we've done. Right? Thankfully, if you're standing on the foundation of Jesus Christ, it is finished. Your sins have been paid in full. Rejoice. Right? And live a life that says thank you to the God who saved you in doing these good works. Again, not out of obligation, not because you think they earn anything but out of thanksgiving to the God who, who saved you. Good? Clear? Does the, does the situation with Crete now make a little bit more sense when he talks about who he's setting up as elders, why they have to be above reproach, and, and they have to be able to teach sound doctrine, rebuke those who contradict it? There were a lot of 
tough personalities on that island, and he had to stand up and, and shoot them down with regards to uh, the, the doctrine of God, right? the whole counsel of God. All right, let's pray. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast, where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.